Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. I want to welcome you to our Sabbath uh, Torah study. Uh, we are going through the Torah this year, and we're sharing about how the Torah really is for all people, that these stories and the things that are taught here are applicable to all of us, not just the Jewish people, not just Israel, for all believers, especially all believers that believe in the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. So we are now about to begin uh, our study in the book of Exodus. Looking forward to sharing this. This is the predominant story of the entire Torah. In fact, uh, I've shared this with others. If I were to uh, summarize the teaching of all five books of Moses down into just a couple of sentences, it would go as following. Uh, the Torah is really the story of one generation that was led out of Egypt and traveled through the wilderness on a journey to the promised land. And the first book, Genesis, is simply explaining how did they get stuck in Egypt to begin with. That's a super simple teaching of the uh, Torah. But now we're going to dive into learning about the Exodus. However, in the Hebrew, this book is not called Exodus. That's a term that's been put through the English. The book here in Hebrew is called Shemot. Shemot means names. And it comes from the first words of Exodus chapter 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt from Jacob. They came each one with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher... And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt, and Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generations. Um, uh, right off the bat, Moses wants to recount something that was explained in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, when God directed Jacob at the invitation of Joseph, to go down and dwell in Egypt. It was part of a fulfillment of prophecy that God had given Abraham. Abraham had been told that his descendants would go down into a foreign land, Egypt, that they would dwell there for four generations, but then God would bring them up and they would plunder that people. He would bring them up and bring them back to the land. Well, here we are at the book of the Exodus, and that's what's getting ready to happen. We're getting ready to hear the Exodus story when God brings up the people out of the land of Egypt uh, into the land of Israel. And so it's recounting the 70. Now, I, I want you to take note of that because let me jump quickly to chapter 2, verse 1, and show you something. To start telling the story of Moses in particular, we're going to talk about his father and his mother. It says, now... A man from the house of Levi. What man are we talking about? Amron. The man is Amron. Uh, went and married a daughter of Levi. Now, Levi is way back. That's the original generation of the sons that came. This is some time later. And there's a daughter of Levi? Well, that's part of the clue as to who was the 70th person that went down into Egypt. Because if you go back to Genesis, if you've gone through that study with me, there's only 69 names listed. It says 70 persons were in Egypt. 
but only 69 names were listed. The 70th person was a daughter of Levi. It was Yoshebel, the mother of Moses, and she was born on the day they arrived in Egypt. Therefore, she went down to Egypt. She'd been carried actually in the womb, but she was born there in the land of Egypt. She's a daughter of Levi. She's actually the daughter of Dinah. Levi and Dinah is her mother. So Amron turns out as going to be the actual nephew of Yoshebel. He's a generation down from her, and she's going to get married to him. This is a miracle birth. This is really incredible stuff here. And I think the reason why she had to marry a nephew was because she was of such advanced age there weren't any other men in her generation that could help father children. So she had to go get down to the nephew level, uh, to the next generation level, to be able to father children. And, and as it says here, uh, verse 2, And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. And then they put the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of Nile. Now, why in the world did she do that? Well, if, I, if you go back to chapter 1, one of the things that it clearly says is that the day came when there was a new pharaoh. And he did not remember Joseph. You know, the Joseph who saved Egypt. He didn't remember the family of Jacob that came and were invited. And Pharaoh welcomed them into the land. And that Pharaoh agreed to, and Joseph went, and they'd had this big Egyptian entourage, and they honored Jacob, and they buried his life. He was a very prestigious man in Egypt during that time frame. Well, this Pharaoh doesn't remember all that. He doesn't want to remember all that. So all of a sudden, he looks around. And these children of Israel who had begun to purchase land and prosper and do well, and they were all over the place in Egypt, and they were doing very well, he all of a sudden becomes concerned about them, full of envy. But he becomes concerned because he says, whoa, those guys are becoming more numerous than us. We're, this is called Egypt, and there's almost more Israelites than there are uh, Egyptians here. And so he's fearful that an enemy could come by and recruit Israel to defeat Egypt. And so he, gets, he becomes very negative and he decides to have taskmasters assign and he puts them into slavery, building bricks and building cities for Pharaoh. And they do a whole variety of stuff. One of the things he does is we've got to curb the population, the multiplication that's going on here. So let's, let us... Um, tell the midwives, if it's a son, go ahead and slay it. If it's a daughter, go ahead and let it live. Well, the, the, how are the midwives going to get past that ruling? Well, they did. They didn't kill the sons. And when Pharaoh hauled them all in said, you're not following my instructions, they have this incredible story that they tell. And Pharaoh's this dumb to believe it. Uh, they said, oh, you don't understand. The Israelite women are very vigorous. And as a result... Um, they birth before we can even get to them. When we hear the word, they're going to have a child. They put a kid out, and, and we can't be there at time for the birth. So they gave that story. So then that's when um, Pharaoh made an edict that all of, the, all of the Hebrews would take their sons, firstborn, throw them in the river Nile, drown them. And that's the reason why Moses is being hidden 
and is then made in this wicker basket to hide him so that somebody doesn't come along and steal him and throw him in the river. So he, his mother puts him in the river, but he puts him in a safe place in the river. Thus, the meaning of Moses, uh, drawn out of the water, that's part of the reason why he's going to get that name, by the, one of the daughters of Pharaoh who will raise him. I want to take you back, though, to verse 7 of chapter 1. Having shared all that, I want to specifically show you how prolific Israel had become in Egypt. Verse 7, But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now, that, that people think, oh, well, that's just a, a, a multiple expression of one and the same thing. And that's not what that is. Let me give you the understanding of this. When he says that they were fruitful and uh, uh, were fruitful and increased greatly, it's referring to their birth that um, that the, they, they, the, the birth rate was just off the charts. Every, every mother was, was bearing children. And almost everybody that was a female that was married was bearing children all the time. So there's multiple of them coming. They were very fruitful. And then when it says that they increased, it says that, that actually another word for that is they swarmed. They swarmed over the land. They just spread out. They didn't just stay in the land of Goshen. They swarmed all over the land of Israel. And when it says they multiplied, it means there was no death of children. That the children would grow up and, and no child died. Uh, and so if you were born, you, you made it to adulthood. And there was none of that. And then finally when it says that it was mighty... They were very vibrant and very strong people. And by the way, if you're going to go through the 40 years in the Exodus, you better be a vibrant and strong people. And so God actually prepared them, that generation, to be able to come out of Egypt and to make the journey through the wilderness. They were a very healthy and a very strong uh, group that was down in Egypt. And this is part of what alarmed Pharaoh. And this is also part of why uh, Pharaoh believed the midwives. You know, hey, they birthed the children before we can even get there because they, they had a reputation. Israelites had a reputation of, of tremendous birth and uh, the tremendous health of the children and the tremendous health of the people, uh, you know, for it. It's fascinating because God will later speak to them coming out of Egypt and learning his Torah so that none of the diseases that were on the Egyptians will be on the Israelites. You know, disease can in, in move into any peoples, and so part of the instruction was to keep Israel already as they were so that none of those diseases made their way over. And I wanted you to take note of that verse because it essentially says that generation that Moses showed up to was a very vigorous and strong and prolific a group of people. Um, as, and so that sets the stage for Moses to be born and uh, what follows uh, with him. 
so now we have the story of where Moses is found by the daughter of Pharaoh when she went to bathe at the Nile. And she finds the child, and then she knows it needs to be, it's, she knows it's one of the Hebrew children. I want you to take note of that. One of the Hebrew children, not Jewish, Hebrew. And calls for a woman, well, a Hebrew woman, to nurse the child and continue to strengthen it. And guess who gets the job? Moses' mother. Moses, uh, um, Miriam, Moses' sister is the one who talks to Pharaoh's daughter to get a woman to nurse the child. And so uh, Moses is being nursed by his own mother. And then when he's done nursing, then he's being raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. He's being raised up <clears throat> into Egyptian uh, leadership and uh, structure, learns all about Egypt and its ways and uh, skills and so forth. Now, he grows up to a certain point and he, Moses is going to see an incident that's going to take place. He's, he's a young man. He sees this thing happen. He sees this Egyptian harming another Hebrew. Now, apparently Moses understood that he came from the Hebrews. Maybe his mother, uh, the daughter Pharaoh, told him, keep it quiet or whatever. But in any case, maybe his sister had told him, maybe his real mother had told him. But in any case, Moses knew he was of Hebrew descent. And he sees another Hebrew being harmed by an Egyptian. And he quickly goes over and he slays the Egyptian, saving the life of the Hebrew. And he thinks it's going to be private. Nobody's going to know about it. And lo and behold, the next day, two Hebrews are arguing with one another. He tries to get them to separate. And they immediately said, are you going to be a judge over us like you killed the Egyptian? Are you going to do the same? And he realizes the matter is becoming known. And he's fearful that if the word gets out that he has slain an Egyptian, his life would be in danger as well. And so that's when he makes the decision I got to get out of Dodge. I'm going to get out of Egypt and I'm going to go into the wilderness over to the land of Midian. If you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, okay, that love scene between uh, Moses and the Egyptian girl and so that didn't happen. And, you know, Yul Brenner, you know, I'm going to cast you into the wilderness and, you know, you'd be and so forth. Uh, no, that didn't happen. Uh, these here in the scripture is very clear. Uh, what transpired. And it was Moses who fled out of fear for the Egyptians because he had slain the Egyptian man. Now that particular incident, the reason I mention that, is going to come up later on in the Bible. And it has to do with Moses is going to be buried. And the devil is going to come to the archangels and say, I'm claiming Moses because he was a murderer. You know, he killed an Egyptian. He belongs to me. And, of course, the angels are going to deny him uh, from that, and it will be because of something that will happen between uh, the moment when he slew the Egyptian until the time he died. Something happened in his life and I'm going to give you, I'm going to leave you a little bit in suspense that changed that. When we get to that particular passage, I will point this out to you again. By the way, I just incentivized you to tune in for the future Torah broadcast for me to answer that question for you. 
the Torah does these things, and why shouldn't I do the same to you? It gives us these little hooks of, of question and mystery to get us to draw us in so that we'll focus and pay attention and, and begin to relate to what the story is. So what is going to transpire here is very fascinating. Forgive me for a moment. I feel like I have to sneeze, and it's real hard to talk when you feel like you have to sneeze. All right. So um, he's now making his way into the uh, wilderness there with, and he's going to run into a, a fellow named Yithro, Jethro. And he's a sheik of Midian. And that's where Moses is going to spend some of his early days. And he's going to be serving Yithro. In fact, Yithro is going to give him a wife uh, in the course of that. He's going to establish his family. And Moses is out pasturing the flock, and he's going to see something strange. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The west side of the wilderness is not in the Sinai Peninsula. Mount Sinai is not in the Sinai Peninsula. Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And even in the book of Galatians, Paul makes mention of Mount Sinai being in Arabia. So it's, but it's on the west side, and there's a, a big sea that's blocking them called the Gulf of Aqaba today. So if you have a map of the Middle East, you'll see the big Sinai Peninsula come down. We're still talking farther east because the land of Midian is in the ancient land of Saudi Arabia today. And that's where he was at. And there is a mountain range and a mountain that is in that western side of Saudi Arabia called Jabal Alaz. And it is referred to by those that are in the area as being the mountain of God. It's a very interesting mountain. Um, it, you know, it's not one of the top mountains, but it's, it's a tall mountain. And Sinai means points, and so it has a point uh, to the mountain. And in the upper part of the mountain, this one particular mountain there, Jabal Alaz, uh, it's very obvious it has been burned unbelievably, and it's blackened. It, the top of the mountain is just totally burned. And even the rocks are even black, you know, um, from it. It was intensively burned at some point, which raises questions about how in the world did that happen. Um, in any case, he's out pasturing in that area. And he's going to see something interesting. Uh, verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire, in the midst of the bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Note, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. A God is appearing to him. The angel of the Lord is a reference to God in this particular case. Verse 3, so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why the bush is not burned up. 
And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called out to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet from the, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. A couple of things I want you to take note of. Do you think that God, when he goes to speak, do you think that he is, has a stutter? No, I don't, I don't think God has a stutter. I think he can speak very clearly. Do you think Moses is hard of hearing and you have to repeat things for him? No, I, I don't think so. So why did God call out Moses' name twice? The answer is because there were two voices, two parts of God called him there. Now that's for future study as to which two parts are we talking about. I can tell you this, one of them was definitely the Father, for certain. I think the other one was the Holy Spirit because I think the Son was already in Egypt and he had gone down with Jacob. So it was the Father and the Holy Spirit, the angel of the Lord. He saw the angel of the Lord. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And he, so he begins to speak to him, and he tells him, take his sandals off. His sandals probably were made of some kind of animal skin. To this day, on the Temple Mount, when you go into holy ground, if you're wearing any kind of leather belt or any kind of shoe that has a leather to it, you have to remove those things. You can only go in with cloth or something that's weaved or barefooted. Uh, on the Temple Mount. And to this day, the Jews do not go up there in regular leather shoes or leather belts uh, for it. And it originates from this. And he said, do not come near, remove your sandals. The ground you're on is holy. And verse 6, and he said to him, I am the God of your father. Who is that? Amron. I'm the God of your father, Amron the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the, God, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Let me, um, let me say something to you right now. Uh, and this is true for every one of us. Is God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, is he our God? The answer is yes. But the official title for you personally is you list your earthly father first. My earthly father, his name was um, Charles William Judah. When I recognize the God that I serve, the God I serve is the God of Charles, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And every one of us have an earthly father. And our earthly father was that who was created before us, and he was instrumental in the creation of how we got to be here on the earth. And so... God is honoring Moses' father. He's building on that same respect uh, for it. I, I've heard lots of people, uh, you know, uh, talk about, oh, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I use that reference too. But the truth of the matter is, he's really the God of your earthly father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and that's part of the proper way that God will introduce himself to you personally. Uh, so he comes to him, I'm the God of that. And then Moses said he hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Um, when you have a real experience with God, um, 
and we kind of picture it as a loving one thing and a wonderful thing and so forth. If you come to terms with God very directly, it will be a fearful thing. It will be a fearful thing. And later on, it will say, even when God spoke from Mount Sinai, Moses was full of fear and trembling uh, for it. That's the proper thing to be before the Lord. We should be afraid of the Lord. We should hold him in great awe for it. And by the way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we're not talking about the fear of dread. We're talking about the fear of awe, of just you hold something in awe to where that uh, it appears that you are, um, you are afraid of it. Um, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. He didn't say your people. He said my people. Did you catch that? And I have, and have given heed to their cry because they're taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. By the way, you could take those words and you could apply that to your life almost throughout your life. God knows who you are. You're one of his people. And are, is he aware of the struggles you're having? Is he aware of your, your outcries and because you have difficulties? Yes, he is. He's very aware of that. And he's taking that into account. All that, you know, he's not ignoring us. He's not forsaken us or forgotten us. He's still remembering, you know, his children, even multiple generations after they went down there. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Did you know that the promised land had all those people in it? The land that God wants to give the children of Israel has got all these ites in it. And they're going to be pushed out. They're going to be, you know, they either can be given peace or they, they will be defeated. That's the land that God said. And essentially these people had come in and after Abraham had left, they came in and settled there because it was a good land. But he's saying, I know the land has those people in it but I will be bringing you up. That's the land I'm going to be giving to you. And now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come up to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, at this point, we're going to have a series of interesting questions and answers because... Um, Moses, who's sitting there listening to this, he, you know, remember, he left Egypt for fear because he was afraid of, of what they might say of him and they might do to him. And all of a sudden, God said, yeah, I'm going to send you back there. That's the last place he wants to go. So he has a series of questions and they're kind of objections. Why, why do you want to send me there? I mean, I, I'm not sure, you know, that's not going to be good, you know, kind of thing. So let's go through some of these questions. Some very profound answers come out of this. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Hey, that's a very good question. Hey, you know, um, I'm just one of the Hebrews. I mean, you know, who am I? I'm not the leader. I'm not one of the elders down there. I don't even live there uh, with them. Uh, and by the way, I got no clout with Pharaoh. 
So who, who the heck am I that I would be that sort of person that would do that? And verse 12, and he, and he said, certainly I will be with you. Oh, oh, that's right. God plus one is a majority. Did you know that? I don't care how many you got lined up in your side. If God is with me, the world cannot come up with an adequate force to defeat me. God plus one is the majority. And if God says, I'm going down there with you, Moses, you will be more powerful and able than anybody else there. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought up the children of Israel Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. I want you to take note of the language. The sign that God is giving to Moses is to prove that God sent him. There's a lot of people you're going to run into in your life who are going to come on to spiritually. And they're going to behave as though God has dispatched them into your life to speak into your life, either prophetically or teaching-wise or whatever. And one of the things that if a person is inferring, well, God sent me, that needs to be examined and that needs to be proved. And God will have given a sign to support that. Now, as we go down through here, God's going to give Moses three signs. By the evidence of two or three, you establish the truth. He's going to give him three signs in the course of this. So it will be understood that God sent him. We'll get through this in just a moment. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Okay, I'll go and I'll say you sent me. And they may say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Oh, say, if God sent me, what's, what's your name, God? What, what is the name you want me to give them for it? It's a very interesting answer by God. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am sent you. Wow. That is a very interesting way of answering that question. Um, many years ago, I had the opportunity to get some advanced leadership training when I used to work in corporate America. Very high-priced consultants out of New York, and this was training that was for CEOs and senior VPs and, and uh, you know, muckety-mucks in a corporate structure. Um, and one of the things, and it was a Jewish guy that was teaching this, by the way, and one of the things that he taught was about commitment, about volunteers and people that are committed. He said, volunteers come and go, and you really can't count on them. What you're looking for is, is people who are committed. And when they're committed, um, then you can count on them. And the way you measure if a person is committed is how do they answer the question? This is what he taught. How do they answer the question I am. I am what? In the case of the CEO that was there, he was teaching the CEO. He said, you need to be able to say in uh, no uncertain terms, I am, and he rattled off the name of the corporation. You're not, you're not uh, your name anymore. 
you, that's who you are. You are that, that entity, you're that organization. That's one of the most important principles that I learn about leadership. For example, here at Lion and Lamb Ministries, is there anyone who has a question that I am Lion and Lamb Ministries? So does anybody have a question about I have a name, Monty Judah, but is there any question with anyone, I am Lion and Lamb Ministries? I literally embody it. That has been from my, from my beginning in public ministry and still exists to this day. Even being retired, I still am that. I still embody what that is. Those that come and commit to the ministry, they become it too. The, um, that's the reason why when we answer the question of who we believed in, you need to be mentioning God's name. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, I am his servant. I am the bondservant of Yeshua, the Messiah. That's how you answer I am. Even before you give your name, that is an indicator which you cannot deny that proves how committed you are. If you answer the I am question with you are a plumber or whatever, well, you're committed to your profession. That you're a father, you're committed to your to being your children. I'm a husband. You're committed to your wife. It reflects what you're committed to. And in fact, one of the things we do when we're um, working with different people, we actually ask them, answer that question three times. I am, answer the question, ask it again. I am, give me a different answer. I am, give me a different answer. That will show you their three top priorities in their life. That's what they're committed to. The guy says, I'm a sports fan. That's what he's committed to. If he rattles off his name. That's what he's committed to. And the Lord says to them, you shall say to them, I am. And that's probably the most powerful statement that could have been made by God to say to the children of I'm committed to you. I am your God. Now, immediately after that, he's going to actually give his name. Here's what he says. Verse uh, 15, And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Now my Bible says, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name throughout all generations. Now, in the place of the Lord, my Bible has a, um, all capital letters for L-O-R-D. And that's this translator's way in the English of illustrating the name that's in the Hebrew is the yod Hey vav Hey name. In other words, some pronounce it Yahweh or Yahweh, Yehovah. You know, they, they present it in that way, whatever the phonetic pronunciation is. But we're, that's the name we're talking about. So using that, let me just say that you shall say to them that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Later on, when God will be giving us the Ten Commandments, uh, one of the things he's going to say is don't take my name in vain. You know, I've given you my name. Now, do not make it common that don't take it in vain. Um, the Jewish people, religious Jews, don't speak the Tetragrammaton name. 
uh, they, they use the term Hashem, which means the name. Baruch Hashem, blessed be the name. And they're referring to the yod heh vav -Heh name, but they're not speaking it. They're not making it a common thing out of their voice along with other common names. Now, in our messianic movement, we've got new people coming in, and they're all excited about learning great things, and they want to know the name of God. So we have a little bit of a controversy on the part of some brethren trying to figure out the correct pronunciation, the phonetic aspects of the name. Some say it's a two-syllable name. Some say it's a three-syllable name. And they try to speak it. And then they try to insert it everywhere. They need to go back to this passage of Scripture, and they need to read this again and understand what's being said here. And they need to listen to the Ten Commandments and what it says there. And it would tell them they need to be extremely respectful when they speak that. Because if you start using that out of your mouth, and then you turn around and blaspheme God, and you turn around and do sin... You are making his name in vain. You're making it meaningless. And oh, by the way, the Lord has a very specific commandment that says, don't do that. I will tell you personally, and I think most people have this. I, I certainly had it. When I was growing up, my father's legal name was Charles William Judah. I never once in my lifetime ever walked up to him, spoke that name to him. I never once walked up and said, hey, Charles, how's it going today? Had I done that, I probably would have been lifted off the ground, being, being knocked back. That is considered to be extremely disrespectful. I would refer to him as dad. And as he taught me with regard to other men, I learned yes, sir, and no, sir. Adonai which is translated as your Lord, is the same thing in Hebrew as saying, yes, sir. It's a very respectful way to refer to the Lord. The Lord, yes, sir, I'm definitely respecting you. God is God, Elohim, but Adonai is respectfully referring to him in that way. And in our Bibles, when you see that word Lord in all caps, all capital letters, it's referring to that that's where the tetragrammaton. Now, I've heard some say, well, it's all through the Bible. And, and so I guarantee you, you can come back and do your own study. Moses may have written this memorial name, but he never spoke it in God's presence. He referred to him as Adonai, not by this name. Um, and I think if Moses regarded the Lord in that manner. Maybe we could follow suit. That would probably be wise on our part to follow suit. We can write his name out. It's written. But when we go to utter it from our mouth, let's be very careful that anything that comes out of our mouth is very respectful of who the Lord is. So he gives his name. He says, this is my memorial name to all generations. Now, uh, I'm just going to mention this just because I want to let... Uh, my Christian brethren, no. Don't overemphasize the name Yeshua or Jesus over this. This is God who said, this is how I'm formally recognized. I, we love Jesus. We love Yeshua and all that kind of stuff. But do remember that even Yeshua showed this respect. 
with regard to this issue. It's a very important one for us to get that straight. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, that's yod vav the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the afflictions of the Egyptians to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will pay heed to you what you say. And you and the, with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, so now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it, and after that he will let you go. And I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house and articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters, thus you will plunder the Egyptians." So God is saying, hey, you're going to run into a conflict situation. This is what I want you to say to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to reject it, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to then make them under compulsion, let you go. And that's what we're going to hear in the different judgments of exactly that's God's plan. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Now that is a very, very important question. It's one thing to do something. It's a whole nother thing to believe in it. When you believe in it, that action follows naturally. But sometimes people will do something and they don't really believe in it. They're half-hearted, whatever the case might be. It's extremely important that if we say we believe in God, that there be substance inside of us that is saying that, and then we do what the Lord says. I know a lot of people who do what the Lord says, but they don't believe in the Lord. I know a lot of people who say they believe in the Lord, but they don't do what He says. You got to have both. You got to have both. If you got one or the other, it doesn't work. You have to believe in Him, and you have to do what He says. Uh, else it has been nullified by your own uh, behavior or words. Your word and your deed must match for it to be truthful. So he says, all right, what, are the, what, what, what do I do so they'll believe in me? And here's how the Lord is going to answer him. Verse 2, and the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand, caught it. It became a staff in his hand again. That they may believe that I am the Lord, the God of their fathers, God of Abraham, God of Jacob, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. They will believe that you've been sent by me and that you have appeared to me by you doing this. And the Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. 
So he put his hand into a bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow, meaning it was a dead hand. This is dead flesh. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in the bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, it restored like the rest of his flesh. And it shall come about that when they will not believe you for the heed of the witness of the first sign, that they may believe the witness of the last sign. But it shall be that if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord. And this is a place where he said, Adonai, not Yahweh. Please, Adonai. Moses is speaking directly to God, right after God has given him his memorial name. Have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since thou hast uh, spoken to thy servant, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who has made him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. And he said, please, Lord, now the, the message, and again, Lord is Adonai there. Now send the message by whomever they went, they wilt. He's, he, Moses is still trying to back out. He's still hesitant, even though God has explained all this. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, is there not your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him, put the words in his mouth. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people. And it shall come about that he that he shall be a mouth for you, and you shall be as a God to him, and you shall take in your hand this staff, which you shall perform the signs. So Moses is trying to do everything about saying, I'm not capable of doing this job. And he's given all these objections and so forth, and God has answered them. Now, let's fast forward to the days of Yeshua. Yeshua has come as the Messiah to the people. He's been sent by the Father. He's come from heaven where God is at, come to the earth, been born in the flesh of a man. He's here. How do we know he was really sent by his Father? How do we know, you know, that he really is the Messiah? What sort of signs does he have? And by the way, we Hebrews, we've been taught that God will give us signs so that we'll believe the message that's being given to us. So listen to, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, uh, Yeshua meets up with his disciples, the early group, and they go to Cana for a wedding. I'm sure you're familiar with this. And they run out of wine. So Yeshua takes water and makes it into wine. And John records for us, this was the first sign that Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee. That sign is just like the sign that Moses was given. 
Moses could turn water into blood. Yeshua could turn water into wine. Blood, wine have exactly the same spiritual meaning. They mean life. Yeshua did the same sign that Moses did. A little bit later on, Yeshua has been traveling around. He comes back to Cana again, doing miracles, healing people, and so forth. And there's a father who has a very ill son in Capernaum. He's heard that Yeshua has come back into the region near the Galilee. And so he wants to go get him and get him to come and to see if he can heal his son. So he travels from Capernaum and goes to Cana. And when he gets there, he confronts Yeshua, tells him what his situation is. Yeshua says something very interesting. He said, unless this people see signs, they will not believe. So he immediately says to the father, your son lives. At that moment, the son who's in Capernaum becomes well. It's confirmed for us because he heads back to Capernaum and his servants come looking for him and they announce, your son, is, your son lives, your son lives. And um, he asks at what time? And he said, it was the seventh hour yesterday, the very hour that Yeshua said, your son lives. And John then says, this is the second sign that Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee. What is that sign? How does that tie back to Moses? Instant healing. Remember, Moses could put his hand in his cloak, leprous, put it back in, clean. The son had died, and he was made alive again. Yeshua wasn't even in the same village. He just spoke it, instantly healed. That's the second sign of Moses. So what's the third sign of Moses? His staff. So what did Yeshua have to do with a staff? Well, staff is made out of wood. And Yeshua told his disciples that when you see the Son of Man lifted up, a reference to him being put on the cross, then you will see, I am. I am. Well, the I am God is the one who gave those signs to Moses. And sure enough, when Yeshua was being crucified, they lifted him up on the cross and they have fixed a sign over the top of him. The sign read who his name was and what he was guilty of. So it said, Yeshua of Nazareth, king of the Jews. The guy claims to be the king of the Jews and his name is Yeshua of Nazareth. That's the reason why he's being crucified. In the Hebrew, it said, Yeshua ha-netzaret ve-melech ha-yehudim. And there are four Hebrew words there. The first letter is a yod, the second one is a he, third is a vav, the fourth is a he. That's the tetragrammaton name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. Now, if you recall, the religious leaders, when they saw the sign, immediately freaked out. They said, change the sign, reword the sign, do something with the sign. And Pilate refused. He said, I've written it, that's the way it's going to be. Because that was the sign that the person that was on the cross was yod Hey vav Hey that was on the cross dying for us. That was God dying for his people in the form of the Son of God doing it. So from this passage, 
you can see the mechanisms of why John in his gospel began to write those things because he, it says, John says in his gospel, I've written these things that you might believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah and believing in him, you might receive the gift of eternal life. So the issue is, what do you believe? Well, one of the reasons why I believe that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah is he did the same signs that God gave to Moses. And I already believed that God did send Moses and he did bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Isn't that fascinating? The story of Israel coming out of Egypt is the basis of belief in the Messiah. Oh, by the way, as you'll see in the story, when they come out of Egypt, guess how they come out? Under the blood of a lamb in the Passover. That's when they're passed from death to life. And it's the Lamb of God that was promised by Abraham to Isaac. The Lord will provide the Lamb in that place. That place where Yeshua was crucified was the same place that Abraham took Isaac. You see how it all fits together? God has been manifesting and revealing this all to us. Now, this portion continues on. Uh, all the way through the end of uh, chapter 5. And it addresses the um, uh, Moses and Aaron going back and confronting Pharaoh for the first time. And there's a very interesting exchange that takes place here uh, as they begin. Chapter 5, And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, now listen to this, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and besides, I will not let Israel go. The logic here is impeccable. There's no way that Pharaoh is going to do this until he's introduced to the God of the Hebrews. And God knew that. There's no reason. You just go in and rattle my name off. You, you need to see evidence of who I am. So these judgments that are now going to fall upon Egypt is to instruct Pharaoh and the Egyptians as to who the Lord is. I like to explain this in this kind of, if you'll permit me, melodramatic way. So Pharaoh says, I don't know the Lord. Why should I obey his voice? I'd like to play the role of Moses here at the moment. Well, let me introduce him to you. And that's essentially what happens throughout the rest of our story here. God introduces himself to Egypt. By the way, there's a day coming when the world says, I don't know Yeshua is the Messiah. The Lord's going to come and personally introduce himself to everyone. It's going to be a scary day. It'll be far worse than the judgments that fell upon Egypt. You can read the book of Revelation, all the judgments that are going to hit then when they get to know who the real Messiah is. All right, that is our portion for this week. We will take up uh, from chapter 6 uh, for next week after that. Shalom, all of you. Shabbat shalom.